of deciphering what of this life um, what this life means what this life is God I just pray that you'll give us great discernment help us to walk in humility Father knowing that the flesh our sinful nature is a reality but you've called us to something so much more I pray, God, that tonight that you'll open your word before us, that we will be drawn in into it, Father, that we'll leave this facility, God, changed. We ask that you'll meet us here in a way maybe that none of us anticipated or expected or even believed possible, God. Will you meet us here tonight in your holy and wonderful name? Amen. You guys can have a seat. Man, this just feels awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, it's just me. Cool. All right. Um, I think that uh, I think that nights like this are particularly transforming because of how many of us grew up and just the thought that that church was something that you went to. And we've met here now, we've met in the high school, in the columns, at the ranch. We tried to meet down on the riverfront, that got blasted by a storm. Many of you remember that night of chaos and potential death. Uh, we've met in households, we've, I mean, we've pretty much met everywhere in St. Charles. And I think what we keep learning is that, that the church is the people. And I think that... Um, uh, just to be vulnerable with you, I think that I need to be reminded of that more tonight than ever. Is that this, not these stands or a room, but this, the hearts that are beating in this room, that is the church. And friends, listen to this. That is the bride that He's coming back for. Come on. He's not coming back for a room or some brick and mortar. He's coming back for the bride, dressed in white, made pure because of his sacrifice. Can we just be together reminded of what the church is, my friends? And so if you're here, and, and even in what we shared at the beginning, you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like all of your core values and your vision, like that's all a great picture, but how, do you, like, how is that even possible? And I'm telling you it's not. And we don't claim that we've got it all together. And as we go through those core values, like we're not saying that we're, we're doing every single one of those perfectly. But what we're saying is that God has given us a vision and we're going after it with all we got. And, and, and is there any other way to do it? Is there any other way than without compromise to go after what God has called you or us to do? So that's what we're doing. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. If you're here tonight for the first time, we're journeying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. He is a physician, a doctor. I know some of you are scared of doctors. As you continue to learn about Luke, you won't be scared. He's actually quite gentle. He provides a great picture of the Kingdom of God over and over and keeps teaching us what the real, authentic journey of Christ is about. And last week, and I just have to, I have to go back over this because it's hilarious, the disciples get sent out with all authority and power to to cast out all demons, the Scripture says, and to heal diseases. They come back and they're telling each other what happened. 
And then, and then a, a familiar miracle, right? There's all these people, maybe up to 15,000 people on this hillside. And the disciples make a suggestion to Jesus and say, Hey, we need to send all these people back to their village so, so that they can get their grub on, right? And, and Jesus says probably one of the most hilarious lines in Luke. He says, You give them something to eat, you know? Like, what's your problem? You guys have been casting out demons and healing diseases. Like, you give them something to eat. And, and for me, like, I relate to that, right? Because I, our, our pride wells up so quickly. But what I most relate to, what I most relate to is their response. He says, you give them something to eat. And instead of being like, yeah, 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 you're right. Like, okay, you're right, Jesus. We can't. You can. We're going to rest in you. They say, dude, all we got is some fishes and some loaves, you know? Instead of like resting back in him and, and being reminded of their own inadequacy, they're looking around trying to, oh, trying to figure it out. Well, you give them something to me. Okay, you know, well, we got a couple of fishes and a couple of loaves. And then Jesus uses them to serve the masses. And the disciples are reminded, friends, listen to this, that our gifts are to be a reminder of our inadequacy. But isn't that a paradox? It's like our gifts instantly well up our pride. When Christ's whole teaching over and over is that the gifts that I give you are to be a reminder of your inadequacy and your dependency upon me. So friends, we're picking up, and I'm, I'm just, like tonight's story is, is one of my favorites, alright? So Luke chapter 9, you guys are already probably there. Verse 18 is coming right out of this teaching from the beginning of Luke. Once when Jesus, verse 18, was praying in private, And Luke adds this, different from Matthew and Mark, this praying in private. It seems like Luke oftentimes will put Jesus in a solitary place praying before something big is about to happen. And his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? You remember that in, this, in the last teaching that Herod Antipas was answering the same question. He was confused about who Jesus was. And he said, who is this Jesus? Like I've heard some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some a prophet. And I'm just like, who is this? That same question was asked by the disciples and the demons. But look at this, verse 19 says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. They answer honestly. Jesus asked them, who do the crowds, who do the multitude, all of these crowds have been following, who do they say that I am? Well, Jesus, they, they say that you're a prophet. But friends, a prophet is not Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Like a prophet is, like, like it's, it's less than. And so to say prophet isn't as significant, isn't as great as that. Look at this. Verse 20 says this. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And friends, I'm, like that's the question that matters. Many of you grew up believing that somehow you could ride on the coattails of your family. That somehow your father's great faith was going to be the thing that was your key to an eternity in paradise. And that was the term you used. But the reality is the question that is so vital for each and every one of us is who do you say that I am? I don't care about the crowds. Would the crowds say that I am? That's all well and good. But I'm interested in who you say. My disciples, you've been around me. You've been hearing my teachings. You've been growing in the understanding of me. Who do you say that I am? Do you remember when you were a kid and you're starting to, to remember and, and you're starting to get the idea of who your parents are? Right? Have you guys ever had that? Do you guys remember the first time that your mom or dad like gave, played the authority card? 
and, and they said, but I'm your mom, you know, but I'm your dad. Like, like, well, and, and kids would ask the question, but why? Because I said so, you know, and, and you're starting to get this grasp of who mom and dad are. And this, like, this is a piece of that growing in grasp of what it is to follow Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman of the disciples, answers, the Christ of God. And that's kind of sounding like Charlton Heston there, right? The Christ of God, you know? Let there be light. Now listen to this. The Christ of God, this is like crazy significant here. To say that He is Lord, okay? Like you guys have all seen ancient movies with armies and stuff. Like a a, a soldier will call the, the general Lord. And so anyone can be a Lord. Like Lord implies something greater, something more. But to say the Christ of God. So far, he's been called Christ of God by two different groups of people in Luke. A, the angels. B, the demons. And C, the narrator Luke, because he has a little bit of an advantage because he's writing so many years after Christ was resurrected. So he says the Christ of God. No, no, no. Christ is different than Lord. It's different than Jesus. Christ is... Messiah. And all of the Old Testament, who are the Israelites waiting on? They're waiting on the Messiah. Different from Lord. Okay? They're waiting on Messiah. They're waiting on the one who's going to come back and militantly wipe out the Romans from political oppression, save the Israelite nation, bring them out of bondage from any other idea of slavery. So all of the Israelites, listen to this, including the disciples, are waiting on this Messiah. So, for Peter to answer, like, who do, the, who do you say? For him to say the Christ of God is to say, you are the one we've been waiting for. Come on. You are the one that since the fall of mankind, the entire scripture has been pointing to. You are the one that in Isaiah, when it talks about the Messiah to come, you are that, you are that one. Do you guys understand the significance of this moment? That it's one thing for the angels to say Christ of God, okay? It's one thing for the demons to say Christ of God, because we know in James chapter 2 that even the demons have faith and believe that He's real and shudder at that. But it's another thing for the disciples, for the followers of Christ to say you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. It's interesting to note that in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus hangs on the cross, those mocking Him underneath say, why don't you save yourself? Aren't you the Christ of God? And I feel like that's some of your interpretations of the Messiah. Like you're sitting around constantly saying, well, God, what are you doing? Like, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one who's come to redeem your people? What are you waiting on? I'm not hearing you. I'm in a time of silence. Have you ever been there before? Where you've been like waiting for God to speak to you or to, to show you something, right? And you're, you're almost sitting down at the foot of that cross, almost in a mocking way, saying, come on, why don't you talk? Why don't you do something? Aren't you the Christ of God? Aren't you the Messiah? But what none of them understood underneath the cross was that he had to die so that three days later he could be like he could rise from the dead friends Peter 
identifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we see an interesting verse. Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Kind of weird, right? You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting on. Don't tell a soul. All right? Now, again, at first glance, you're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't consistent with how Jesus has interacted with people so far. In fact, remember, he, at times when he's healed people, he said, go back and tell people what I've done for you. But, but what have we just explained? The Christ of God is what? Is Messiah. It's different from Lord. It's different from Jesus. If the disciples start telling people that the what has come, that the Messiah has come, do you understand what that does? All of a sudden, it forces instantaneously a Roman confrontation with Jesus. And we all know that there's more of the Gospels to be written, right? So we all know that it's not time yet. So we all can understand now that when Jesus strictly warns them, do not tell people that I'm the Christ of God. What he's saying is, it's not time for me to die. What he's saying is, is this is going to cause a major conflict and I'm not ready for that yet, even though it's causing conflict overall. You guys, you guys with me? Do you see that? Because it's important. Like, as many times as I've read this gospel, like, I've, I've skipped over that part, and I've always been confused by that. Jesus, like, like, if you're the Messiah, why aren't you just wanting to tell anyone and everyone? And it's because it's not time to die. Verse 22. And then he said, the Son of Man, what's the word there in the NIV? Must. It's key. As you're reading through Scripture, there are like key words that come out to you. Look, look at this. The Son of Man, which is the term that Luke has given Jesus over and over, must suffer. Does that give you an indication that maybe that's part of the plan or something? Right? Jesus is talking here. The Son of Man must suffer. Does this give you an indication that He understands a little bit what's going on here and what He's there to do? The, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Now I want you to picture yourself as a disciple, and you're going to hear these words for the first time. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Whoa. Like it's already been intense, right? Jesus has already asked, who do you say that I am? And now he says, the Son of Man, who's me, the Messiah must suffer and must die and on the third day be raised from the dead. And you're like sitting back and like, what? Like, what? Where was this when we were fishing? You know? Like, could you give us some more indication? Hey, Peter, come and follow me. Drop your nets and I'm going to die soon. You know? Like, like where was that at then? But here it is now. And what he's, what he's setting these guys up for, what you've signed up for, what I've called you to, is a life is a life of complete and utter sacrifice. Is a life that is completely countercultural, completely against the grain. Friends, listen to this. The Son of Man must suffer. People say that Jesus didn't understand the plan. Does this shed some light, friends, on the fact that every step that Jesus was taking was on His way to Jerusalem, on His way to hang in a cross, on His way to be raised from the tomb? Do you guys understand that? He came with a great sovereign plan and purpose. And you're a disciple and you've just heard this the first time. So you're having to wrestle with all of these things. And then he said to them all, and you thought it was, like you thought it was getting intense, it's about to get way worse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily 
and follow me. Now, we've all heard this verse, if you've been in the church, probably three million times. When I think of denied, just to be honest with you, I think like in basketball, when someone like, when Shaq Diesel like blocks the ball, right, and it goes up against, you know, have you ever said like, D-died, you know, it's kind of a trash talking thing that I like to say sometimes. But the image of denial is that something is happening and all of a sudden it gets rejected, it gets repulsed, it gets Shaq Dieseled up against the wall, right? Do you guys get this image? Now, to deny yourself, do you understand that that is, like that might be the hardest teaching moment that these disciples have had to hear? You, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Well, what is yourself? Every single person everywhere is completely depraved and sinful. We enjoy somehow mysteriously gossip and jealousy and lying and lust and sexual immorality and drunkenness. These are things by our sinful nature, friends, that, that just come out naturally. But the call of Christ is that we must deny self. And then he moves on. What does he say? Take up your cross. What's the word after cross? Daily. Right, right? And, and, and if you're thinking in your mind, taking up your cross is this image of, of sacrifice. That's true if you understand sacrifice to be death. For someone to take up their cross meant that they would carry the crossbow of the, of the crossbow of the cross and they would carry it up to be executed. That's what taking up your cross means. It doesn't mean that, you're, that your flesh is nailed to the cross. What it means is, is that you're carrying your execution stake. So would you, do you guys get this? He tells the disciples, I'm going to die, be raised from the dead. And then what does he say? He says, if anyone comes after me, guess what? He's going to die too. He's going to die to himself. He is going to daily take up his cross. He is going to daily die. And, and you're like, like, that's kind of morbid, Mark. Like daily death to myself. Like what, what kind of talk is that? It's a talk of ultimate sacrifice. And he goes on, and I think this will better illustrate what he's talking about. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Now, I have with me here a very heavy-duty uh, safe. You guys all see this? Jamie, can you, like, I feel like a Chris Angel here, you know? Mind freak, yeah. Just look at that. Just a legitimate safe. Now, the store says that this safe is 1,500 degree fireproof for up to 30 minutes, making it automatically hardcore. You know, I mean, this safe, you can throw, and I'm doing the quick math here, in a flame for half an hour and nothing happens to it. Amazing, right? Walmart, you can buy it for yourself. Now, the image here, the image here that he says is, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And again, I'm going to try to pop this open here. The image that I keep thinking about, anytime that someone wants to use a safe, they're afraid that something's going to get what? Hello? You guys all went to school, right? Stolen. S-T-O-L-E-N. Okay? Stop laughing. When you use a safe, like in a hotel for instance, you're afraid that something is going to get stolen. Rich people have big ones, okay? Why? Because they have more things to get stolen. So when Jesus says, 
Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What he's saying is this, is that my lust is worth preserving. My jealous heart is worth maintaining. My gossiping mouth is worth keeping. My premarital sex is worth keeping in here nice and tight. All of these things that are a part of my sinful nature, I'm desirous of saving them so that they will be preserved and so that no one can steal them away. So I get to experience lust and I get to gossip and I get to have premarital sex all I want and I shut the safe and I lock it and here it sits. But what Jesus says is anyone who wants to save his life, all of the things that make you sinful, all of the things that separate you from the fall of mankind till now from me, anyone who wants this will lose everything. You may be trying to preserve your lust and thinking that somehow that is going to gain you something, but you're believing a paradox. Because what you think you're gaining, you're actually going to lose. And then what's the image? He says, whoever wants to what? Whoever loses his life for me will what? You see, the people are the same. Lust, gossip, jealousy, anger, rage. Right? Like if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, I struggle with those. Exactly. So here's the image, right? Is that through Christ, the image is, no, no, no. I don't want, listen, I don't want to preserve any of these things. I despise my gossip. Will you please get out? I despise my premarital sex. Will you please get out? I despise my drunkenness. I despise my gossip. And what happens is, they are laid bare before Christ, and He takes them. And that's the image of whoever loses his life, loses his self, denying self for me, daily dying to this self, that person will save it. You're to be really honest with yourself right now. Where are you at? Like you're looking up here at the safe and you're like, that won't hold what I'm trying to save. Like you need a bigger safe. Because right now the reality is, is I'm so blinded by my sin and I feel like that this, this lock is so tight and there's no way out and it just keeps building and building and building. Friends, can I, can I share something with you? That's exactly what the enemy wants you to feel. He wants you to feel so burdened and bogged down that there's no way out. Friends, can I just claim a truth with you? That whoever wants to lose his life will save it. And whoever takes self and says, Christ, will you please do something with this nasty piece of me, that person will be saved. A little bit countercultural, eh? Right? Because culture, like, like Oprah sometimes, right? She does cool things sometimes, right? But, but like our whole culture is self. 
is everything is about me, everything is about my gain, this world has nothing for me, what we were just singing really doesn't ring true in our lives so much, friends. The teaching of Jesus is we must die to self daily. It's not once a week. It's not whenever we feel good about ourselves and then we all of a sudden remember Christ. It's every day I wake up and because of Christ I say, I die to my flesh today. Are you ready for that? Like, is that, is that what you're ready for? Are you, are you good with this rhythm that you're in? Because some of you are in this rhythm, right? Come here, feed. Come here, get fed, buffet style. Go home, do your thing. Come back a week later. Go to, go to life family, do your thing, come back. Are you ready for the rhythm that wakes up every day and says, Christ, will you help me die to myself today? Because I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to save up anything that is a part of my sinful nature. Jesus goes on. Check this out. Verse, uh, verse 25. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? It's like, hey, and we've talked about this concept before. You can have any, anything and everything and put it all in here, but the reality is you have nothing. And I taught several months ago that are you willing to trade nothing for everything? Because that's what it is. We're trading nothing. We have nothing to give for everything that comes through the person of Christ. How ignorant are we that we can't grasp that concept and we can't just rest in that reality? Verse 26 says this, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And oftentimes we claim John as like the major verse that is Jesus through Christ we are saved, right? Anyone comes to the, no one comes to the Father, what's the verse, but through me. And Jesus says this, is it possible that this verse is almost even more telltale than no one comes to the Father but through me? Look at this, look at this, check this out. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, this is Jesus talking, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let me put it to you like this, what happens in the glory of the Father has everything to do with the person of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. If you are ashamed of me and my words, then guess what? When we stand in the glory of the Father, guess who is going to be ashamed of who? There's nothing here. There's no relationship, friends. What happens on that day when you stand before Yahweh, Father God, has everything to do with Christ? And so, when you put that with Peter saying, you're the Messiah, are you getting a picture of what's beginning to happen in the lives of the disciples? Huh? Are you getting a picture of what should be happening in our hearts? The Messiah, the one I've been waiting and yearning for, is here. Verse 27. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now let me break this down a little bit. Kind of a confusing verse. The kingdom of God, we've talked about before, is this concept that you can't wrap your mind, your heart, your soul around. Once you think you've got it, it's bigger than that. The kingdom of God is ever expanding, is ever growing. And so when Jesus says to the disciples that some of you aren't going to taste death before you see the kingdom of God, all I have for you is a few suggestions of what this might be. If you're good at reading, okay, you'll notice that next week we're going to be dealing with the transfiguration. Should be a lot of fun. It could be a precursor to that. 
some of you are going to see a greater expanse of the kingdom of God through the transfiguration, read ahead if you want to, of what that looks like. Or maybe the kingdom of God and the expansion of that is simply the expanding of the church in Acts. Maybe it's the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down. We're not really sure, but all we know is what Jesus is saying here is you, here and now the disciples, are going to see the expanse of the kingdom of God now. Friends, if this church desires to be what I shared earlier on tonight, a church that is people striving after the person of Christ, learning what it looks like to follow Him, knowing that to follow already implies that I'm daily taking up my cross, that I'm daily dying, that I'm denying self. If we desire that, friends, then it's time to die. You're like, yeah, sweet. Let's do this, man. But it is. If we desire to be followers of Christ, then it's time to die. Maybe some of us will be martyred, but all of us are called to die to self. And we sit around rooms like this wondering why 10 of 11 were killed because of their faith. Do you think they understood that the call of Christ meant death. Friends, the call is clear. Will you continue to save all that makes you separated from God? Or will we as a church, as we begin a new era, say, Christ, will you take our inadequacies and because of you, before the Father, make us accepted? Let's pray. God, I pray that the question rings true of each of these people here today. Of who do they say that you are? I pray that each of us in our own hearts are answering that question. The Messiah or Christ or some prophet or some good speaker. God, I pray that you'll stir in each of our souls the reality of understanding what it is to see you as Messiah, as the one we've been waiting for. Lord Jesus, come now. Grab our hearts and make us more like you. Thankfully, as a little boy, I was blessed to have the opportunity to have grown up in a house.